It reminds me of, uh, of, of CNC because we used to be this few, eight, nine people. There's the seniors now. <laughs> so praise God for that. Thank you for opening with prayer, Brian. Uh, so before I begin, um, so the portion that is given to me is Philippians chapter 3 from verses 17 to 21. So before I, uh, we turn on to the scripture, I wanted to talk a bit about how to understand a given verse or how to understand a given paragraph. So there is one key factor or one key thing that we need to take care of while understanding a particular verse or a paragraph. And that one key thing is the context. If we can identify or if we can uh, know the context, in what context that particular verse is written, then we can, we can be sure uh, that we, we are understanding the portion correctly and we are interpreting a correct interpretation and not a false or a misinterpretation. So there are three types of uh, context. The first one is an immediate context. Uh, immediate context uh, means that what, uh, if we are looking at a particular verse, what does it say above it, what does it say below it, and how it sets in in between. So that is an immediate context. The second one is a larger context. So how a particular verse sets with the theme of the whole chapter or whole book. And does, uh, the, does, it, does it have the same theme and how is it uh, resonating with the whole theme? That is a larger context. And the last one is the cultural or a historical context, which we can know by uh, knowing who was the target audience of that particular book. For our case, it was the early church, the Philippians. And uh, the writer of the book was in a house arrest in a prison. And by knowing those kind of context, we can be sure to, uh, we can be sure that uh, wh whatever the context is, through, through that con context, we can interpret the given verse accurately. So with that in mind, let us turn to our portion, Philippians chapter 3, and uh, uh, let's read verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So over here, uh, Paul, is, uh, uh, Paul is asking the church at Philippians to Im imitate himself and to keep their eyes on uh, a certain things and to walk a certain kind of walk according to the example that they have in us, us, us is, includes Paul and Timothy both because uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 1, we read that Timo Timothy was also with Paul when Paul was writing the letter. So us may include Paul and Timothy, both of them. So he is uh, inviting the church to imitate them. So what, does it, so what does it mean exactly by imitation? So what I can, uh, like I, I also found out the dictionary meaning. It means to mimic someone. So what I was able to think of, like very simply, was to out outline something. So there. So for example, the children's children's drawing book is there, and they uh, outline the dotted picture. And then after they outline the whole picture, uh, the full picture is revealed, and they know that this is it is a lion or an elephant or what kind of animal or any kind of thing is there. So it means like outlining exactly how that thing is, or in, in our case, how Paul lives or Paul has, has for the Philippians. Now, what does Paul wants his readers or 
the church to focus on when he invites them to imitate them. So we know this by the verses preceding, uh, preceding verse 17, because he lays out a few things, he says about a few things, and then he, say, he goes on to say that now imitate me, now follow my example, now walk accordingly. So what does he say uh, in the few verses before that? Let's read from verses, chapter 3, verses 12 to 16 to get that understanding. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also, also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So all the, all the scripture portions that you are saying on the screen is from the ESV English Standard Version, which I am using. Uh, so over here, so here, I have underlined the portions that Paul is emphasizing the Philippians, Paul is emphasizing them, is to press on, to press on forward. Don't look on the past, press on forward, press on in attaining a goal which would be revealed in the coming, in the second coming of Lord Jesus Christ, and to be mature. So that's what Paul is uh, reminding them or telling them to focus on while imitating Paul. Paul wants the Philippians to press on forwards. He wants them to strain forward to attain the goal being revealed in the glorious appearing of Lord Jesus. Now in verse 17, we also see, uh, we also see that he is uh, also asking them or inviting them to walk a particular kind of walk. So, and uh, we also read the same thing in chapter 4, verse 9, which I'll quickly read. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So we're here as well, we see that Paul is inviting them to practice those, practice those things, to bring them into action, not to just be passive listeners, but be active listeners and put them into actions, walk accordingly. So by walking in this way, Paul wants them to become mature or perfect, which we just read in verse 15. Uh, chapter 3, verse 15. And so what does it mean by being uh, mature or perfect? So he, he's, not, uh, he's not telling them to become sinlessly perfect, to become completely like Christ Jesus, because you cannot be completely sinlessly perfect unless you are in, unless after Christ Jesus comes and we, are, we appear in appear with him in the glorious body, which we will read in, uh, I think, in uh, verse 20, 21. But he's inviting them that strive to strive for perfection, strive to become mature. Uh, in other sense, we can say that he is asking them for sanctification. In verse 12, he's also saying that not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. He's saying that not, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I am striving for perfection. I'm striving to make myself mature and perfect. And we also see this word for mature that, is, uh, that we see in verse 15. It is the same uh, word that, is, uh, that appears in verse 12, and the same Greek word, Greek root word, we also see in different portions that I have just written, uh, which we first see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, where 
Christ Jesus is a uh, telling uh, is is preaching his disciples on the mount and is telling them to be perfect as your as my Father in heaven is perfect. So over there we see the standard that Christ Jesus has given to his disciples. It is not a nominal standard, but a very high standard of becoming perfect like my Father in heaven is perfect. So that is, so that is one very important thing that we can remember and we can practice in our life, a kind of a final goal of our life, that what type of sanctification process that we need to go through. And there are different verses that Paul uh, addresses to, to the church at, Corinth, uh, church at Corinth and also the writer of Hebrews also uh, talks about. So over there, the context of the word is about, he compares about the growth. There, don't be child or don't be childish, uh, but grow and, be, uh, and grow and be like a man, not like a child. And, and learn, to, learn to discern what is good from evil. Now, uh, at the same time, he, uh, we also see in the book of Philippians also an example of the walk of Christ, how Christ lived. Uh, in chapter 2, verses from verses 5 and 8, I will not read all of them. Uh, and over there, we see the example of Christ's humility and his obedience, where we read that he became obedient unto the death, even the death of the cross. He appeared in the form of a, of a servant and took upon himself uh, and became a servant and and stooped down so low that he died for us. So that is also another type of example that is uh, portrayed in the book of uh, Philippians in chapter 2. Now, the, now Paul is uh, contrasting verses 18 and 19 uh, by, by telling them or by laying out a few examples how you are not to walk. So what things you are to be careful of, beware of, and not to walk. Let's read verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame with a mind set on earthly things. Now we're, now we're here, Paul, Paul is laying out different things, how not to walk, not to walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ, and not to be filled with shame, and not to focus on uh, the things of the world. And then uh, uh, let's again uh, also move forward and read verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So over here we again see that uh, the verse of 14 where he was saying that I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call, that the, the idea of that verse 14 is again being resonated in the verse 30, uh, not 30, sorry, 20 and 21, where he is awaiting for the appearing of his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, where his body will be transformed and, and his body will be transformed and then he would be made perfect, like sim, uh, sinlessly perfect. Now over here we read a very important word, uh, citizenship. So what does it mean by citizenship? So myself and Rutu being an immigrant to Canada, we very well know what citizenship is now because we were a temporary resident, we became a permanent resident. So we can think of citizenship as our permanent place of abode where we are, perma 
we live permanently and uh, or which is our final destination or a permanent destination and uh, so th the people who who are of a of a particular citizenship are are of particular culture or a particular manners so we we need to always remember that our permanent destination or a permanent habitation is not of earth but of heaven but but not of earth but with christ we have to remember that we are just pilgrims or temporary residents of earth or earth or canada or wherever we live we are we are not supposed to get accustomed to the manners of this world or place where we live but be heavenly minded uh, now this word uh, for citizenship that is used in verse 20 over here the same greek uh, word is repeated just once in the whole of new testament which we read it in uh, chapter 1 of philippians and verse 27 we'll just quickly read only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. So just the beginning portion, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the word citizen, so the verb form of the word citizenship is being used in the first, in the first, few, uh, first few words, only let the manner of life. So over here as well, we see the same kind of notion or an idea where Paul is emphasizing that let your manner of life, let your manner of walk be like that, that you are the citizen of heaven, that you are not a citizen of this world. Let your manner of walk be like that. Because the citizens of heaven would have one common thing, which is the gospel of Christ. That's why he goes on to say that uh, live life, l let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we have to, uh, so we uh, see over here that how we can show uh, that we are not of this earth and our citizenship is in heaven. The same kind of idea we also see in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, which I will not go over because I'm running out of time. And the last, uh, I'll just move on to conclusion. So conclusion is imitate to press on forward and await for the, and waiting for the glorious appearing of our Savior, the second coming. Walk as mature Christians and strive to be perfect, which is sanctification. We have to go through that process of sanctification. Be warned of those who walk or live according to their own desires. Have, have your mind fixed on, earth, on heavenly things and not on earthly things. And remember that your belonging and your permanent habitation is in heaven with Christ and not on this earth. Pray, blessed be the name of the Lord. Just quickly pray a short prayer. Uh, Father, dear God, I thank Thee and praise Thee for giving this a wonderful time and uh, helping us to uh, concentrate on these few verses and understand, uh, helping us to understand them. Lord, be with us. And Lord, I also pray that, uh, pray for all of those who are being affected by this storm. Uh, Lord, be with them and provide all the necessary things to them. And uh, also bless them with uh, the, uh, bless them that they have missed today and help us to live accordingly. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, good evening, everybody. Thanks, Glenn. It's a wonderful passage, and a, it's been a wonderful book. I don't know if anybody else did the math, but I uh, noticed that was about 20 minutes on five verses, and I have 23 verses, so if you do the math. Anyway, I won't keep you that long, but uh, thanks for coming out. Uh, and um, 
I just wanted to say that I have very much enjoyed, I think Philippians is one of my favorite books, always seems to change uh, as you go past through different stages in life, what's your favorite book, but I've always enjoyed it and uh, have found, you know, it, find it a very motivational book, an uplifting book, a uh, book of encouragement as, as we've said and I know the college and careers went through it this year and, and really enjoyed it. I participated in a couple of those studies and and it was very good. So as we get into this last chapter, um, again a wonderful chapter and as I was reviewing it and uh, trying to come up with something that I could deal with in 20 minutes or less, I kind of laid out seven points and I hopefully can get through those seven points in, in 20 minutes and each of these uh, relates to, I think, items of what I'd call privilege as Christians. And uh, what I mean is, as believers in Jesus Christ, what our attitudes, our actions should be uh, because of these privileges that we have. And so I'll just list them out first, and then I'll just work our way through them, uh, touch on them briefly, and hopefully get through the seven. So the first one is standing firm in the Lord. Second one, agreeing in the Lord. Thirdly, rejoicing in the Lord. Fourth, petitioning the Lord. Fifth, thinking on the Lord. Sixth, contentment in the Lord. And seventh, generosity in the Lord. And uh, so the first one, standing firm in the Lord and this comes up very early on in the, ch in the chapter, and it says, you know, the chapter begins, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And so this is how, therefore, relating back, as uh, Glenn was suggesting, we have to know where that's coming from. And I think it's coming from, you know, some people might think it's, sort of a summation of everything that's come before in the book. I would tend to think it was more uh, the f uh, couple of the previous verses, specifically 21 and, uh, 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the idea of we have reason to stand firm, we have this great hope, before us that we that awaits us and so an encouragement to stand firm so you know the question is what does he mean by standing firm in the Lord and you know looking up the Greek word the description has a sense that it's not so much you know what we do but it's a stance that we take it's it's uh, a position that we're uh, holding to and so as Christians, um, we stand firm in our position in Jesus Christ, that we've been saved through faith um, by grace and that he has completed a finished work for us. Likewise, standing firm would mean that we'd rest on the scriptures, the iner inerrant word of God, that we hold to it, that we uh, cling to that uh, very firmly. We're not going to give in to you know, we're, our position is firm. We're not giving in to the lies of the devil uh, to 
succumbing to the temptations of the flesh um, and we're you know, simply holding forth to these truths. So that's what Paul's telling these Philippian believers and telling us to do. We've put our trust in something and we are going to stand firm on that despite ta- attacks both on that truth but also that might come upon us as well. So standing firm in the Lord. The second point is agreeing in the Lord, and it's, it's uh, an interesting couple of verses, verses 2 and 3, and I'll just read them. I'm sure you read them this past week, but it says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So these are two Christian women. Uh, It's thought those names are female. Um, But clearly these are women who have been partners in the gospel with Paul, uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul, this is a, a significant issue, clearly, that he wants to address. And I find it interesting that he addresses them both by name and sort of speaks specifically to them that they need to to work at this. And I don't see it as being an issue of um, doctrine uh, or anything like that. To me, the way it comes out, it's really just a disagreement, perhaps a clash in personality or something like this that has taken root and caused real division. And Paul is very anxious for it to be dealt with. And it's significant, I think, that both he speaks uh, specifically to them, that they need to, I think, really search their own hearts to see how they can do something to, to bring back unity between them But he also speaks to the other believers uh, in Philippi and is saying that this too has to be something that you need to help these women with. There's clearly an impasse and they need help. And so I certainly was spoken to by that, um, whether it's uh, myself or anything else uh, between us and another believer, it disunity, I think, can be insidious in in a Christian fellowship and can cause uh, significant problems in the fellowship, but it dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, that disunity could be, you know, here at Rideau View between believers. It could be between believers from different churches. It could be within a home, uh, husband, wife, could be between a child, a parent, whatever it might be. But these things need to be dealt with and Paul takes it very seriously as he speaks to them, asks them to think deep and hard about how that unity can be restored between these two individuals. And so I think there's lessons in that for us as individuals, but but also as a church body, and uh, needs to be worked on. Uh, Obviously, when there's disunity, it affects young believers, new believers. They see this disunity where people think, well, you know, how 
is the Spirit of God working in their life if, if, if this continues to exist? And how does their, um, you know, the witness to the outside world is, is certainly damaged. So we get to our third item, rejoicing in the Lord. And I like what you said, Glenn, about the context. And we think of the Apostle Paul. We've heard that word rejoice or some aspect of it throughout this book. Um, and very significant. And again, the context is a, a man who's in chains for the gospel. And certainly his human position isn't something to rejoice in because he was undergoing hardship and, and yet rejoicing in the Lord is what he's telling us to do um, in verse 4. And he says it twice in the same verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. So urging a heart of rejoicing. A heart of rejoicing. And, and I don't know about you, but uh, certainly myself, I'm not one to uh, meditate on the Lord very often, but as we do, there's certainly much to rejoice in, isn't there? And we can have lots of different issues in our life, but if we can sometimes set those things aside and dwell on the Lord Jesus and what he has done and, and where our position is with him, and uh, there's great rejoicing that can come about because of that. So sometimes we need to remove ourselves from circumstances and simply meditate on the Lord and what there, all that there is to rejoice in him. And that's certainly something that Paul is suggesting to, to us in that verse. Certainly if he could rejoice in his circumstances, then we can in ours. Next item is petitioning the Lord. And verse six, is in, 6 and 7, I'm sure if I asked the group here, most of us could uh, say that from memory, those two verses, very familiar verses, and it's good to know them by memory, but as I was thinking about that, how are we doing in terms of living out those verses? And often a significant thought, I mean, it, it's as we listen to the news, as we listen to experts in mental health, worry, anxiety, stress is a significant issue within our society today and within the, within the Christian church, I would suggest. And, but yet we simply have, we have a very simple and I would suggest really fail-proof solution to the problem of worry, anxiety, and stress. And it's laid out very clearly in those few verses. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, there's an instruction, don't be anxious about anything. Well, that's not so simple to do, just cut and dry, don't be anxious about anything, but... There's a solution, right? The next uh, statement is, but rather present your requests to God, your prayers and petitions in some translations, 
So he wants every kind of request, every kind of prayer, every kind of petition to be brought to him. Nothing is too big or too small. I'm kind of the person who brings big things to the Lord, but the small things perhaps not so much. But he wants to hear from us. And those small things that perhaps are causing stress, he wants us to bring those to him on a daily and moment-by-moment basis. And then the other instruction that these, that we should be bringing these prayers to him, but with thanksgiving. So with thanksgiving in our hearts. And I think that would mean an acknowledgement that God is good. We acknowledge, we come to him with thanksgiving, acknowledging that he is good, and we've brought those requests. We understand that he has our best interests at heart in everything, and that regardless of what the result is, perhaps what we do or don't want, the ultimate uh, response or end result of this situation is going to be good for us in the long term. And so there's an element of trust and faith, an element of um, just uh, faith in, in, in the Lord as we, we thank him. We thank him in advance for what he's going to do and how he's going to work out that situation in our life. I had, uh, I was looking at this on Sunday and, and uh, not too long after I'd been thinking about this very point, I got a, my wife got a call from the fire department. They called, said, you got to get out to the wood source. We've got a, an alarm ringing and uh, there could be a, a fire. We, uh, we're heading there, so I headed out there. And as I went out, I cer- certainly had a complete um, sense of peace and calm as I prayed and uh, just brought it before the Lord, not particularly worried about what the end result as I, as I arrived at work, um, because if the wood source burnt down, it wouldn't be too big a deal. But anyway, it was just a, a simple but uh, real um, opportunity to live out those verses um, just after I'd been studying, so I, I appreciated that. And really, the peace of God, I'm sure we've all experienced it. Yes? There was no fire. No. The peace of God, I'm sure everyone here has experienced that peace of God that is beyond understanding at various points in our life. I've heard people here express that. I remember Dave expressing that as he awaited his surgery uh, a couple of years ago. And... uh, it, it, it is significant. It's wonderful when we put those things before the Lord and, and we sense that burden lifted from us and we sense that all is good in the Lord and that he will look after us. And uh, so we have the answer to stress and anxiety and, and uh, all those things in those simple verses if we can continue to live them out. I'll try to be brief on these last through think a few thinking on the Lord. Now there's many scriptures that point to the importance of our mind and how that will affect our actions, our words and all those things. The Lord talks about it in Matthew 15. Paul talks about it in Romans 12, uh, renewing our minds and so the admonition here in, in uh, Philippians, Um, 
I'll just turn to that verse quickly. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Again, a very simple instruction, but we can sometimes get our minds thinking on less than excellent things, can't we, in terms of perhaps attitudes towards others, perhaps um, uh, perhaps uh, selfish thoughts, whatever it might be. And the Lord admonishes us to think on all those things which are good and perfect and lovely. And I often think about, as we think on the Lord, we are thinking about those things, aren't we? Those things that are true and perfect and lovely. And, and uh, so certainly that would be uh, a way that we could live out that verse. Contentment in the Lord. The next two points, contentment in the Lord and generosity in the Lord, sort of are brought together and, and dealt with uh, because Paul is talking to the Philippians. He's thanking them for their generosity that they had, how they had given generous, generously many years ago to him when, they, when he first uh, was in need and then more recently had been generous. And he was stating that he didn't necessarily want their gift because he needed it. And he simply says, because I've learned to be content in every, in all and every circumstance. And as we are aware of Paul's life, we're very much aware of the things that he had gone through. And the other thing that he notes is that it's, He's learnt the secret, learnt the secret, he, he, he states, and that's significant. It's not natural for us to be content, I don't think, as human beings. Certainly not, uh, in, I'm not one to be necessarily content, but there, it is something that we need to learn, and it's a secret that the Lord can help us um, arrive at. And again, it's contentment in the Lord, isn't it? And it's a contentment where we're not chasing after the things of this world, as um, Glenn pointed out, we're, we're, our citizenship is in heaven, and in a sense that holding on tightly to anything in this world is going to lead to perhaps discontent or chasing after, uh, as opposed to being content in who we are in the Lord, the position we have, the future that we um, await and just his provision on a day-to-day -day basis. So all those things, as we reflect on them and realize them, are going to bring about contentment. And then finally, generosity in the Lord. And, you know, there's, there's a number of scriptures that talk about uh, being generous, um, the Lord, uh, God loves a cheerful giver, and there's a number of passages that Paul speaks about, I think, in Second Corinthians and here as well. But it's interesting how in this section that Paul speaks about, he brings it up 
in the sense that he wants to thank them for their generosity, how it has helped him uh, bring forth the gospel. But he brings up a bit of a, a, uses a business terminology as he speaks about it. And he talks about being a credit to their account. And so he says, it's not so much I want your gifts as I want you to have that as a credit to your account. And that's interesting, isn't it? Um, I think as we uh, look to before the Lord to, to how we can use the, the funds and gifts that he's given us, we could think of it in that term as well, that we have, we have much and the Lord lays something before us where we can uh, give, then we're in effect uh, providing a credit on our account, as it were, and the Lord wants us to be generous. And I often think of, we, we realize, we look on the, on the back board, uh, we support a number of missionaries, but I'm sure none of those missionaries um, are overflowing with funds, are they? Perhaps they are, I don't know. But we can certainly give to our local assembly and certain amount of the funds. We heard the other Tuesday night that 25% of the funds goes to missions, but there's nothing wrong, is, it, is there, in terms of finding out and perhaps giving additionally to some of these missionaries. And I often think of our local workers. Peter Kerr was here the other night. We have Jerry Libby and others who uh, are active in our own assembly and in many other assemblies around. And so as I read this passage about uh, the Philippians and their generosity and Paul thanking them and, and encouraging them in that, I think it's something that each of us can think about personally and also as, uh, as well as a church, how we can be generous in the Lord in terms of what we do with what he's given us. So I'll just recap those and, and close off. Um, standing firm in the Lord, agreeing in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, praying and petitioning the Lord, thinking on the Lord and all that is good, contentment in the Lord, and generosity in the Lord. So some great thoughts that come from this last chapter, and I think just a good way to end uh, what has been a, a wonderful study of a very practical and encouraging book that I've thoroughly enjoyed.